decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It's Thursday, October 13th. And I hope you're having a great week so far. You just got two more days, today and tomorrow, and then you'll be kicking into the weekend. And uh, I've got a University of Montana Grizzly game to go to on Saturday. I'm looking forward to that. Always a good time. Grizzlies are undefeated this year. It's uh, It's been fun so far. So let's hope they keep that ball rolling. Um, and it is Thursday, which means my day started way too early. I am, quite frankly, almost ready for a nap. Um, Thursday mornings I get up and... and uh, and zoom into a prayer meeting in uh, Conway, Arkansas, of uh, Grace Bible Theological Seminary students and faculty, and occasionally staff members even. And uh, it's a, it's a highlight of my week, but it's six thirty their time, which means it's five thirty my time, which means in order to get a shower and a cup of coffee and me before. Uh, I actually have to talk to people. I get up at 4.30 on Thursdays, and I'm feeling it this morning. <laughs> I was laying in bed last night and uh, really digging into a book. And uh, Janet re leaned over and said, don't you have prayer meeting in the morning? It's like, oh, yeah, I better go to sleep. So I am, I'm feeling it this morning. I'm dragging a little bit, so... Please pray for me as we move through today's Squirrel Chatter. Squirrel Chatter is a podcast that is dedicated primarily to the public reading of scriptures and secondarily to my thoughts on various topics of today. Today being Thursday, it's Theology Thursday, and we are looking at the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, paragraph 4 of chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. And Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.org. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are going to find something that's doctrinally sound. And yes, I have mail. Turn the speaker off on my phone. Or turn my silence my phone. And uh, yes, I do use the old AOL, you've got mail, as my mail ringtone on my phone. So I'll check my email when we're done here this morning. All right. Our scripture reading today is Jeremiah 38 and 39, Jeremiah 52, and 1 Peter 2. And then again, as I said, we'll get into the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. And uh, excuse me, today we're going to be looking at paragraph 4. All right, well, let's begin, as is our habit, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the desires, the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Jeremiah 38. And Shephatiah, the son of Matin, and Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, and Jachal, the son of Shelemiah, 
and Pasher, the son of Mal- Malchijah, heard the words that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, saying, Thus says Yahweh, He who stays in this city will die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence, and he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and save his own life as spoil and stay alive. Thus says Yahweh, This city will certainly be given into the hand of the military force of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Then the officials said to the king, Now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he making the hands of the men of war who remain in this city, as well as the hands of all the people, limp by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking peace for this people, but rather calamity. So King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against him. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, who was in the court of the guard, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water but only mire, and Jeremiah sank into the mire. But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. Now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin, and Ebed-Melech went out from the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern. And he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take in your hand thirty men from here, and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men in his hand and went into the king's palace to a place beneath the storeroom and took from there worn-out clothes and worn-out rags and let them down by ropes into the cistern to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Now put these worn-out clothes and rags under your armpits under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and brought him up from the cistern, and Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guard. Then King Zedekiah sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance, that is, in the house of Yahweh. And the king said to Jeremiah, I am going to ask you something. Do not hide anything from me. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, you will not certainly put me to death. Besides, if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, As Yahweh lives, who made this life for us, surely I will not put you to death, nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says Yahweh, of, Yahweh God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will indeed go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then you will live. This city will not be burned with fire, and you and your household will live. But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hand of the Chaldeans, and they will burn it with fire, and you yourself will not escape from their hand. Then King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am anxious because of the Jews who have gone over to the Chaldeans, lest they give me over into their hand, and they deal severely with me. But Jeremiah said, They will not give you over. Please listen to the voice of Yahweh and what I am saying to you that it may go well with you and you may live. But if you keep refusing to go out, this is the word which Yahweh has shown me. And behold, all of the women who have remained in the house of the king of Judah are going to be brought out to the officers of the king of Babylon. And behold, those women will say, Your close friends have misled and overpowered you. While your feet were sunk in the mud, they turned back. And they will also bring out all your wives and your sons to the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from their hand, but will be seized by the hand of the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no man know about these words, and you will not die. But if the officials hear that I have talked with you, and came to you, and say to you, Tell us now what you said to the king, and what the king said to you, Do not hide it from us, and we will not put you to death. Then you are to say to them, I was presenting my petition before the king, not to make me return to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and questioned him. So he told them in accordance with all these words which the king had commanded, and they ceased speaking with him since the conversation had not been overheard. 
So Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guard until the day that Jeremiah was or that Jerusalem was captured. Chapter 39. Now when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and all his military force came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city was breached. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down at the middle gate. Nergal Sar Ezer, Shamgar Nebu, Sar Sechem, the Rab Sarsus, Nergal Sar Ezer, the Rab Mag, and all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. Now it happened that when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, they fled and went out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. And he went out toward the Arabah. But the military force of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And they took him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he spoke judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. The king of Babylon also slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He then blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. The Chaldeans also burned with fire the house of the king and the houses of the people, and they tore down the walls of Jerusalem. And as for the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had gone over to him and the rest of the people who remained, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, took them away into exile in Babylon. But some of the poorest people who had nothing, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had them remain in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields at that time. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave a command about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, saying, Take him, and set your eyes to look after him, and do nothing harmful to him, but rather deal with him just as he speaks to you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, sent word along with Nebuchadnezzar, the Rab Saris, and Nergal Sarezer, the Rab Mag, and all the leading officers of the king of Babylon. They even sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the guard and gave him over to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the, the son of Shephan, to take him home. So he stayed among the people. Now the word of Yahweh had come to Jeremiah while he was confined in the court of the guard, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring my words on this city for calamity and not for prosperity and they will take place before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares Yahweh, and you will not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are terrified, for I will certainly provide you with escape, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as spoil because you have trusted in me, declares Yahweh. Now Jeremiah 52. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of Yahweh this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now it happened in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his military force, against Jerusalem. And they camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city came under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so strong in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was breached, and all the men of war fled and went forth from the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls which was by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by way of the Arabah. But the military force of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his military force was scattered from him. Then they seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he spoke his judgment on him. 
Then the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he also slaughtered all the princes of Judah in Ribla. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah, the king of Babylon, bound him with bronze fetters, and brought him to Babylon, and put him in prison until the day of his death. Now on the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, who stood before the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of Yahweh, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every large house he burned with fire. So all the military force of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, tore down all the walls around Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took away into exile some of the poorest of the people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had defected to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had some of the poorest of the land remain to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now the bronze pillars, which belonged to the house of Yahweh, and the stands and the bronze sea, which were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans shattered and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the bowls, the pans, and all the bronze vessels which were used to minister. And the captain of the guard also took away the cups, the fire pans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the pans, and the offering bowls, which was fine gold and what was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea and the twelve bronze bulls that were under the sea, and the stands, which King Solomon had made for the house of Yahweh, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of each pillar was eighteen cubits, and it was twelve cubits in circumference, and four fingers in thickness, and hollow. Now a capital of bronze was on it, and the height of each capital was five cubits with a network of pomegranates upon the capital all around, all of bronze. And the second pillar was like these, including pomegranates. There were ninety-six exposed pomegranates, all the pomegranates numbered one hundred on the network all around. Then the captain of the guard took Saraiah the chief priest, and Zephaniah the second priest, and the three doorkeepers of the temple. And from the city he took one official who was overseer of the men of war, and seven of the king's advisers who were found in the city, and the scribe of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and led them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the, hand, in the land of Hamath. So Judah went into exile from its land. These are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar took away into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, 832 persons from Jerusalem. In the twenty-third year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took away into exile 745 Jewish people, and there were 4,600 persons in all. Now it happened in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 20th, 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke to him good words, and he set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim... <clears throat> changed his prison clothes, and had his meals in the king's presence continually all the days of his life. For his allowance, a continual allowance was given him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. And now, 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him 
will not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this stumbling they were also appointed. But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good works. As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For such is the will of God, that by doing good you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free people, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God, honoring all people. Love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are crooked. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did not sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Who, being reviled, was not reviling in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, and now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the Collect for Grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance, to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Chapter 8, paragraph 4 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 8 is entitled, Of Christ the Mediator. And so we are speaking of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this paragraph really lays out um, a lot of what he has done for us. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge he made under the law. Which that he might discharge he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul, and most painful sufferings in his body was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. 
On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father making intercession. He shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. What a fabulous statement about the work of Jesus Christ. Um, I want to go back and call up my uh, copy of the 1689 here because I want to, it, that opening paragraph looks at the uh, office which Christ overtook, which is referring back to paragraph 3, and I want to see again what that was. Um, the office of mediator and surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So it says this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake. It is the office of mediator and um, mediator and, uh, and surety, guarantee of our salvation. For scriptural proofs we are given, excuse me again, Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8, where we read, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my inner being. So again, this is showing that he voluntarily, willingly undertook the office of mediator and surety. Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In, a, in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure of them, which are offered according to the law. He then said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Referring to the fact here that the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed forward to the final perfect sacrifice of Christ. That he alone was a sufficient sacrifice to take away the sins of all who would believe in him. And that we have been sanctified through the sacrifice of his body. John 10, 18 says, No one takes it away from me, his life, but from myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. So, in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, he went willingly. He did not resist. He did not, he was not forced. He went willingly. And he undertook it willingly that he might discharge, that he, was, he was created under the, he was made under the law so that he might discharge this role of mediator. He had to perfectly obey the law for us. He had to be subject to the law to obey it. If you're not subject to a law, there's no punishment for disobeying, nor is there any reward for obeying. Um, for example, 10 miles from here, there is a kindergarten. I am not punished for not obeying the rules of the kindergarten class, nor am I rewarded for obeying them, because I am not subject to them. I am not under those rules. But Christ had to be under the rules. He had to be under the law so that his obedience to the law would be meaningful. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The law that he kept perfectly. Um. And I remember this was a 
excuse me. I said, I'm, I'm having a rough morning, folks. Up too early with not a lot of sleep. This was something, this next passage, this next text is Matthew 3.15. And it took me a while because I didn't understand at first the need for the active obedience of Christ. I didn't understand that he lived the perfect life that I can't live for me. I understood his death and his burial and his resurrection. I understood that he paid the penalty for my sins. But it took a while for me to come to understand that he lived a perfect righteous life for me. And that when I came to him for salvation, he took my sins and they were paid for at the cross. But in their place, I received his perfect obedience so that I can stand before God clothed perfectly in righteousness. So even today, as I strive to obey God, I understand that my righteousness is filthy rags. Even in striving to be pleasing to him, my good works are wholly insufficient. I need his good works. So he did everything that I am required to do perfectly. And Matthew 3.15 is an example of that. Listen to this. This is when Jesus came to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, you know, you should be baptizing me. I shouldn't baptize you. This was Jesus' answer. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Jesus was baptized because his followers are to be baptized. He was fulfilling the righteousness in our place. Because while we are baptized in obedience to him, it's his baptism that counts. Um, this is why, you know, like the thief on the cross, when, you know, he was, he, he was saved on the cross, you know, minutes or hours before he died, certainly, you know, not a long time before he died that he, was, he came to faith on the cross. He had no opportunity to walk in obedience to the law after that. He had no opportunity to be baptized into Christ Jesus by the physical act of immersion after he came to faith. But Christ's baptism is applied to him because Christ was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He discharged all of the duties under the law that we are required to fulfill because we can't fulfill them. And so he did it in our place. This doesn't mean that we don't strive to obey him now. That would be foolishness. May it never be. We are to strive to live Christ-like lives. We are to grow in our knowledge of Christ and in our walk with Christ as we progress through sanctification between our salvation and our being gathered together to him, you know, till he returns or calls us home. So we strive to be obedient because we desire to please him and we desire to walk in obedience, but our obedience is imperfect at best. And so we need his perfect obedience because that is what we will stand in in eternity. The 1699 continues, it said, and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and, and suffered. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He took our penalty and paid the cost for our sin. So this is the, the, the active obedience is that he actively lived according to the law perfectly on our behalf. 
His passive obedience is that he died to pay the penalty that we owe. You know, he, he, he died a death he didn't deserve because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. So he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. All of our sin was poured out on him. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's the, 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 the sins of all who would believe in him were paid for at the cross. And, and that, it, it, that the wrath of God for our sin was poured out on Christ. Willingly. He, he subjected himself to it. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It is only through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we can be born again. He was made a sin and a curse for us. That's what uh, the 1689 says, echoing 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the cross. That's the payment of the cross. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's his perfect righteousness applied to us. His perfect obedience to the law. You, you just want to break out into song at this point. 1689 continues with enduring most grievous sorrows in his body and most painful suffer in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. Uh, Matthew 26, 37, 38, speaking of the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. In the same, same uh, incident, Luke's account says in Luke twenty two forty four, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down to the ground. So we, we know that the anguish, the, the night before the crucifixion, as he looked forward, knowing what was going to happen, Folks, I, I I doubt that he was, you know, anticipating with any pleasure the physical discomfort of crucifixion. <laughs> discomfort being a mild term. It's probably the most painful form of execution that's ever been devised by man. And we are wicked. Humanity is wicked to come up with such a vile way, even of punishing a, a you know, it's torturing somebody to death, which which is, you know, Seriously, yeah. what's the what's the uh, uh, you know it's just it's not right you know is what's the I'm trying to think of the phrase there's a phrase that was used by the youth several years ago about something being not right and I can't remember it but it, it's just seriously wrong if you're gonna put somebody to death just kill them to actually torture them to death just seems you know like overkill. And yet, mankind has invented many, many ways of taking the life of our fellow man in, in gratuitous ways. I, uh, as many of you know, I'm, you know, I'm a historian, and I've been reading a lot about um, recently about the English Civil War. And... The you, we've all heard of being hung, drawn, and quartered, right? What does that mean? Well, a person was hung, but not to the point of killing them. It, they were they were hung until they were just about to pass out from loss of oxygen. Then they were taken down. This was done mainly to weaken them, because after they were taken down from being hung, they were strapped down to a table. And their intestines were drawn out while they were still alive. This was torturing them to death. 
And then when they die, if the, if the executioners were merciful, they would take off their head at that point. If they were not merciful, they would wait until they died from the pain and blood loss of having their intestines drawn out. And when they were dead, then the body was cut up into quarters. And the quarters of the body were sent to the four corners of the kingdom as an example of what happens to you if you rebel against the crown. This was the punishment for treason under English law, the punishment for rebellion, the punishment for, for not obeying the king and for openly and, and militarily resisting the king was to be hung, drawn, and quartered. I'd have to look and see when the last time that punishment was meted out, but it was definitely meted out in the 17th century um, to after the end of the Civil War and after the restoration of the monarchy, several of the ringleaders of the Civil War who had had um, King Charles I beheaded were then convicted of rebellion and were hung, drawn, and quartered. We come up, you know, but even as grisly as being hung, drawn, and quartered is, crucifixion was a much more painful way to die. And so in the garden, Christ was not looking forward to the physical discomfort, but that's not what brought him all the anguish. He was going to endure the wrath of God for our sin. That was what he was really not looking forward to. He was not looking forward to drinking the cup of God's wrath. That's an Old Testament metaphor. That the, the cup of God's wrath was full and nations were going to drink of it. He was not looking forward to that. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, I, I think, is often mis misinterpreted. He was not crying out because he was not forsaken by God. Even in the outpouring of, of God's wrath, he was not forsaken by God. But doubtless, there was that sensation because of the outpouring of the wrath of God. But what Jesus is doing there, he's pointing to the 22nd Psalm, which is a messianic psalm describing that the Messiah would be, would be crucified. So he was crucified, he died, and he remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. Acts 13, 37, but he who, whom God raised did not see corruption. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he was raised physically. This was an actual physical resurrection of the same body in which he suffered. We know this from John's account in John 20, verses 25 and 27. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, this is Thomas, Unless I see his hand, see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then when two verses later Jesus does appear to Thomas, he says to Thomas, Bring your finger here, and see my hands, and bring your hand here, and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. This was the same body that had borne the, borne the wounds. He was raised in the same body. I have read, and I, I don't know if it's true, 
but uh, it makes good sense to me that the only imperfections in heaven will be the scars on the body of the Lord. And they're not imperfections, they're beautiful. Um, because they commemorate that glorious sacrifice that he made for us. And that same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven. Now, the first proof text here that they give is Mark 16, 19. And, of course, that's part of the longer ending of Mark, which we are fairly certain was not originally part of Mark. But... In the 17th century, when this was written, they were not, they did not have the textual critical data available to them that we do. And they were, you know, just using what they had. And so Mark 16, 19, which like I said, is part of the longer ending of Mark and is not uh, part of the scriptures. Um, it says, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, this is, you know, from Mark. It doesn't mean it isn't taught elsewhere in Scripture, because it certainly is. Look at Acts 1, 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, Two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking, to, uh, looking toward heaven? This Jesus, whom you have seen taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And there he sits at the right hand of his Father making intercession. Romans 8.34 says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Think about the intercessory ministry of Christ. That every day he represents us before the Father. Now, the intercession of Christ, we need to understand that he's not you know, pleading with God on our behalf. He is standing in our place. The continuing intercession of Christ for us is the assurance that we are not under the condemnation of God. We are under the righteousness of Christ. He intercedes for us in that while God looks at us, he sees Christ's perfect righteousness. That's the ministry of intercession. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, in our place. And while he ever lives to intercede for us, he will return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Acts 10.42 And he commanded us to preach to the people and solemnly to bear witness that this is the one who has been designated by God as judge of the living and the dead. Romans 14.9 and 10 For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you view your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is to God that we must answer. Acts 1.11 They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you, from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Again, he's going to return, and he's going to return as judge. 2 Peter 2.4 For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit, and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment. So he's going to judge men and angels, 
He is going to judge the living and the dead. All judgment has been given to him. He is the judge. He is the Savior and the judge. And those who are judged are going to be judged for rebelling against him and rejecting the salvation which he provided. So let me read the whole of paragraph four again. This office, the office of mediator and surety, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of death of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he rose from the dead, with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. This is our Lord, our great Lord. All praise and glory and honor be to God. That, that, the Lord Jesus Christ would willingly undertake to live the perfect life we can't live and then to die the death we deserved. Keep that thought in your mind as you go through your Thursday. Praise him. All right, folks, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.